Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Abraham Burickson. He helps people design experiences as a teacher and a consultant. He speaks publicly about the design of experiences, designs houses in an experiential way, and teaches in the graphic design MFA program at MICA. He also co-directs the experiential performance group Odyssey Works and an experience design certificate program. He's an author of two books, but the one we're going to be spending our time on is called Experience Design, a Participatory Manifesto. It is my pleasure to welcome Abraham Burkson to the deep dive. How are you, my friend? I'm great. And it's I'm really happy to be here. Really happy to be talking to you, Philip. Thank you so much. You know, we we had a, a nice little chat before we started recording. We came up with a bumper sticker. This is gonna be a this is gonna be a rousing conversation. I can already <laughs> feel it. So, you know, I want to start with getting a sense of given the the vast amounts of your experiences, what is it that prompted you to really look at the world of design? and experience and kind of put that together to create this book? It's a long question. Should we go like way back to the beginning of the thought? Going back to the beginning is the, is probably the best way to go. Um, well, I, I was listening to you give that introduction and I, I felt exhausted just listening to the long list of things that I'm doing, much less actually doing them. And I, and I think it speaks to the nature of experience design, that it it's not something that's really comfortable hanging out in a corner. It's something that kind of jumps out of outside of traditional practices. I was trained, for instance, as an architect, and architecture has very strong history, very strong sets of debated best practices, all of these things. But experience design is something that kind of steps backwards out of that space and says, well, you know, what is the experience that comes from this? And we're only just now beginning to have a word for this, to have a kind of umbrella concept to cover this way of thinking. And so when you don't have that singular umbrella over, it looks like you're just doing so many different things. But experience is our whole lives. It's not just the house we're in, it's the community we're in. It's the family we've created. It's the food we've designed. It's the nature of the city in which we live. It's the laws, but it's also the way different communities interact. That's The architect is not simply creating a house, the architect is intervening in these much larger spaces. And so, you know, to just be an architect leaves one kind of wondering how you could kind of zoom out and think about your relationship to the larger experience. For me, when I started trying to understand what it was I was actually interested in was like when I was a teenager and I was going on these trips led by this incredible old, old woman. I mean, she was so, like her eyes were like deep in her head. I knew her all my childhood and she was always older than time. And she would take teenagers on these journeys and she would 
kind of put us in charge, right? So we would drive the cars, license or no, we would uh, manage the food, we would manage the money, the maps, and we would go searching for this place we're trying to get to. And she would make it very hard on purpose. She was designing experience for us. And there was this one trip I, I remember that was really powerful for all of us. It was in Mexico and there was a group of, I don't know, 15 Mexican and American teenagers. And there were plenty of adults to make sure we didn't drive right off the cliff, but they were kind of in a support role. And we took this journey all over Mexico. And at, at one point, you know, she turned to me and she said, I need you to get the group lost now and make a wrong turn because I was the navigator. You know, I was telling everybody which, which way to go and leaving the front group. And so I, I led them. She was building this kind of sense of adventure and the sense of like really having to be very present to the trip we were taking. And for me, the capacity to understand what it is to play a certain role in the design of that. And all kinds of things happened. Cars got caught on fire and, you know, we didn't know how to drive stick shift and yet we had to do it. And the road was washed out. One girl, she dropped the keys in the alligator pit. It was all full of intensity and a sense of meaning, whereas it could have just been a bus trip to a tourist site. And so we went down to the ruins of Palenque, the Mayan ruins. They're not so ruined like some, you know, like Troy or something. They're quite well rebuilt or still just standing. And, and they're right there in the jungle. They're dramatic. I don't know if you've seen them, but they rise up above the canopy and it's incredible incredible. When you're in the ruins, you're walking through this old city that people lived in, a sacred place. But she walked us in very quickly past the pamphlets, past the didactics. She made sure we went, we went fast. And then she just said to us, what would it be like to have been one of the people who lived here, knowing nothing, led only by our imaginations as teenagers? And she didn't say, what would it be like to visit this place when it was happening. And she didn't say, you know, what is the historical significance? She said, can you imagine what it would be like to be here? And so we walked around with only that structure, trying to imagine the life of a place and what it was to be there. And recognizing that my whole understanding of how I live was structured, was designed, was a choice, was an option among many because this was a totally different one. This had a different kinesthetic quality. It had a different emotional quality. It had, uh, you know, what would it be to live in a place that was centered around the temple, that was centered around nature in that particular way? It was mind-blowing. I thought about, I still think about that all the time. Years later, I was like, we got to go back. I got to go back. I went back with some friends. We went in, we bought our ticket, like, I don't know, 10 years later. And we saw the didactics and, you know, listened to a little bit of a tour guide. And it wasn't magic. It was a tourist site. It was an educational opportunity. It was an immersive 3D version of what I might have seen in a National Geographic magazine. And I always came back to that moment and some of the other experiences she brought us on. And to recognize it wasn't the place, right? It was the way our whole time, not just in the place, but trying to get to the place and doing so in community and in a community uh, with incredible leadership, with a certain value system, which was wonder, was structured and designed so that that moment might be something that could radically change me. And it did. It set me on this path. And years later, you know, it's a longer story, but I began to 
experience all architecture in this way. I would walk into a building and feel affected by it. I, I think that's nothing miraculous to say we are affected by the buildings we were in. But you know, I was sort of traveled around the Middle East, spent time in spent a fair amount of time in Turkey and wandering in and out of those mosques in Istanbul and feeling myself completely radically changed by being in them and asking the question, what does the form have to do with this? How is the form designing my internal experience? And so when I went back to architecture school, I was asking this question, but architecture school and most design school is really about the stuff. It's really about the doors. It's really about, you know, the traditions of how things look. We're very, very, very visually focused. We're very interested in the this kind of uh, idea of the perfect thing, the thing that is the thing, uh, real art, something like that. And so while I was studying this, and I love looking at beautiful things, I was also continually asking this question, what is the experience that this is a part of. Eventually I went down to the Amazon jungle to ask that question in a context that was totally different from my own. Lived with an indigenous group called the Shuar and built houses with them. And, you know, of course the house is just a structure. The question was, how is this kind of prismatic structure opening onto a whole different world? How can I look through this into a different way of being? Because again, I was going, I was back in this question that I had gotten from Peggy, the old lady, about my world being one choice among many. And here I was with people who felt like the regular world, the everyday world was not the real world. The real world could only be accessed by these long journeys into the jungle and crazy psychedelics or whatever. And that I wasn't even really a person. I wasn't really a person because I had never gotten to know the gods who lived in the waterfalls, right? This whole worldview is so different. Like we can talk about it, but what is it to be inside of it? What is it to let your world be structured by it? And so, you know, so when I came home, the question was just richer and richer and richer. Everything we do is a piece of this experience design that we and, and those affected by us are living inside of. And those are choices. Everything is a choice. It's a, it's everything in human society is a choice. And it's a choice that has been made, maybe not by one nefarious person, you know, the architect in the matrix, but by lots of people. And we take it for granted. I take it for granted that America is America and that's the way it's always been. And maybe we can monkey around at certain little choices in the edges, but you know, all kinds of stuff, the way we work, the way we relate, the types of people, what is good, what is bad, even physics, what's up, what's down, how I can move, who I can love, what I'm interested in, what is work, what is purpose, all of these things come from a designed context. And for me, once these experiences started breaking down my sense of how all that needn't be taken, breaking down my sense of how all that is taken for granted, how all that is simply there, and moved it into the zone of choice. Everything I did from architecture to creating performances and writing to pedagogy, all of that started to be understood in the context of here we are building the world as a series of choices. And in doing so, what is the world that we want to build and how can we start to explicate ask questions about the tools of experience design that we're using and then offer those tools to ourselves and others in such a way that that others as well can can ask the same question because i think we have i think there's a lot of people with a lot of really noble ideas 
but we keep running up against the nature of things. I want to jump in a little bit and dive a little deeper, no pun intended. Every time I say that, I feel like I have to say (laughs) no pun intended. That, you know, there are so many choices. Like you said, the world that we are in, that we experience is one that is constantly shifting. We are all coming into different particularities with our bringing parts of ourself with us to interact with them differently than maybe another person would. And, you know, I reflect on all those myriad ways in which that builds on itself in the way that you just described in in recounting that story of, of your guide when you were younger and subsequent interactions. And what I'd love to hear from your perspective as someone who thinks clearly very deeply about experiences, the world that we are in, and the many ways it can become a place of wonder, you know, as more of a layman, I'll say like sort of um, a spectator to these things, not as a deep practitioner to some of them. I I feel that we are in a space where despite the fact we have so many choices, so many opportunities, so many things feel the same. You know, in the sense that, you know, I I jokingly was was talking to some friends about, um, you know, HGTV, for example. Right. And, you know, 24 hours of pretty much home decor, you know, fix it shows and all that kind of stuff. And yet it all kind of feels the same. Right. That you're going to have the fireplace. You're going to have the flat screen TV mounted over it. You're going to have the certain, you know, splash surfaces in the kitchen. Everything's going to be marble and stainless steel and, you know, open concept. So I'm using a very base example of HDTV, but generally I feel like there's a lot of sameness in what's being created, despite the fact that we have the capacity for more. So this could be also my take on it, but I'd be curious as to how you feel about those sorts of experiences, sameness versus myriad of of opportunity. I mean, I think, you know, it speaks to the fact that we are in a world with structures. And in that world with structures, we have, you know, archetypes, standards, we have genres, we are working within contexts that define what we're doing. And so in the worlds that are built, there is an idea about what is doable, what is a thing and what is not. A film is going to be an hour and a half to, you know, whoa, a three-hour film, you know, but it's not generally going to be a 10-hour film. Like, that's something else entirely, right? Or, or you know, a song, you know, three minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes? You know, what are we doing there? And part of the reason we do that is because both the designers, the makers, creators, and the people on the other end are coming to the table with a set of ideas about what to expect. We're offering the same thing. And that is... Great. That is the nature of a world. There is no reason to change it, I would suggest, unless there is a reason to change it. And I think one of the things that I would like to suggest, and one of the reasons I've written this book, is that we often start too late in our creative process. We, we usually start phase one, which is coming up with the idea. Coming up with the idea is pretty much already going to be inside one of those preset structures, one of those habits. We haven't started with the why of the idea, what we call uh, in our work the phase zero, which is to say the experiential aim. What is, what is the effect we wish to have on the world? And if it is a different effect 
then the two-hour film, then the double-decker tour bus journey around the city, then the product that makes things ever so slightly more efficient, then perhaps it needs to be thought of in a different way. Phase zero is when we sit down and we say, well, what is what is the effect we're looking for? And perhaps the form needs to be reconsidered because every form has an experiential affordance. And if that experiential affordance is not what I want, then we need to think differently about the form. And this is why we start to work in an interdisciplinary way. In other words, if we have, say, a, you know, I, I would say like the movement from theater to immersive theater was this big shift, you know, it was linear, right? But um, not that there's no more theater, but there was a sort of perhaps a question was asked, what would it be if the people were in the show? What would it be to be inside the show? That's a question. I want people to have the experience of being in this world, not just witnessing this world, right? A really clear experience goal. And then this new form arises. What we need to do is not just say, well, that's super cool. Actually say, what is the experience this has created? Why do people go to Sleep No More, this immersive theater piece in New York, over a hundred times? Surely they know what's going to happen by now. There's a certain mode of being that that show uh, facilitates, and that mode of being is something they want. Wow, now we understand that. Now we see that you can offer people a different way of being themselves in your designs. Now we can back out and say, well, what is a way of being I want to offer people? I love the fact that you brought up this notion of time, right? Because it can often feel like the time that one has is limited for any number of reasons. But it feels like to me that the goal in the general universe, you know, let's kind of go back to the architect in the Matrix as, as your example, one of my favorite movies ever. And I even love the second one where the architect appears. I know many people who are fans feel it was diminishing returns along the Matrix journey, but I was one of those people who went along for the entire ride. And I actually love the scene with Neo and the architect. I think much of what's important about the Matrix is wrapped up in their conversation. Moving forward, there might not be a grand designer and architect in the way in which that movie re represents itself, but it also does feel, and again, maybe this is my personal perspectives coming in, that so much of our experiences, quote unquote, are designed, like that question that they're asking is like, how can we get these people to consume? <laughs> right? So the way the world is increasingly being, in my mind, again, designed is how do we get these humans to think less, right? To ask fewer of the questions that you're asking and to just do more of swipe a card, push a button, tap something, you know, give me their data so I can get them to consume more. Like if it just feels like that to me, right? So I feel like I'm spending a lot of my time pushing back against that, right? So when you mentioned like music, for example, yeah, I think that we've seen all these reports, songs are getting shorter, right? Like no one's making Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Because it's easier to make a three minute and 10 second song that's going to show up on a soundtrack, that's going to show up on a TV show, that's going to be on a TikTok video or whatever it is, right? So this is not to be cynical, but I'm trying to really get at the core of, are we in a place where we can ask the better phase zero questions if we're assailed by so much stuff that doesn't allow us to think. Yeah, you know, I think 
that just having the space and time and the intention to ask the phase zero question does a lot of heavy lifting. While I absolutely agree with you, I hate I hate even the term consumer. This is what I am. I just consume like some yeah. like a black hole. Yeah, it just dumbs us down, right? It dumbs us down. It limits us to a certain activity. It diminishes us. That's right. I hate the term, you know, but I think it's telling. And I think it speaks to the way the design of a world will always offer a role for us. It will always suggest here is a role you can step into. If you go in, like you and I are in this little in this little world, you're the interviewer, I'm the interviewee, you know, we're, we're not going to be playing other roles right now. And that's great. And we step into it, we feel ourselves, you know, this idea, I, I teach these writing classes for designers, and we look pretty hard at, at, at writing and language and, and this idea of code switching. Uh, and it turns out a lot of young people have a lot of experience with, you know, with code switching. They speak, especially multilingual students, they're constantly switching between literal languages, but also ways of being, internal languages, personality languages. We are so fluid and designers are inherently optimistic and this is not an optimistic time and this is a thing that kind of bumps heads at, at the moment we this is a time when we're starting to recognize the real huge challenges we face as a culture as a planet and design says oh we can do something about it i think when we look at code switching when we look at the fluidity that we have as individuals, I think we can be a little less cynical. We can be a little less sort of feeling totally controlled by these designs. On the one hand, I want to say we are totally controlled by these designs. On the other hand, I want to say, but we have the capacity to move into totally other ways of being. And if we can step back and say, okay, what is the design and what is our experiential aim? Then we can start to design for those ways of being. Yes, we are controlled by context. Yes, we are in a way a subject to the world we have designed, but it doesn't take much to change that. I mean, in a way it takes a lot to change the whole world. It takes a revolution. Uh, it takes a supernatural act like that in order to change the whole world. And I, and I talk about Gandhi in my book as a consummate experience designer. And it's hard for a country without a lot of weapons to throw out uh, occupiers who have better weapons. That's not how he did it. He threw it out by doing experience design, by doing world building, by changing the roles that one could see oneself playing inside the world of colonial, colonized, the colonized subcontinent. Who's also working to undo the caste system. Did he, you know, one man, manage to fix all of India's problems? No. But his brilliance, his brilliance in demonstrating a way of being that was contrary to the way of being that was designed by colonialism allowed him and the people who were with him to cast off British rule to create a new country. Did it go perfectly? No. But did they achieve a supernatural act of completely transforming the world by what? Making salt? Not eating for a little while? Uh, dressing, being a high caste person dressed as a as a poor person and yet being respected, spinning their own clothes. Yeah, that was what it took. And, and I want to suggest that if Gandhi can do that 
can dress differently and make some salt and throw out the British, we can, uh, with small moves, but a clear intention, create a whole different world for ourselves and perhaps the communities that we're involved in to live in. But we need to know what our goal is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, we mentioned the work you do in theater. We mentioned you teach. All of these things are deeply communal experiences. Yes, you can do a one-person show, but, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> and um, even in that context, there's still sound. There's still light. There's still art direction. There's still all these other things that no one-person show, I guess as a metaphor, is really a one-person show, right? To put it all together. And teaching is definitely a space of community, right? It's shared learning, even teacher to student. Like you said, these are stepped-in roles, but one affects the other. Maybe that proportion is not always the same, but it does exist. So having kind of set that up, I'd love to hear from you how do we build more of that spirit of community when, again, so often the experiences that folks are designing seem to me, again, this is a layman's perspective, increasingly about taking themselves out of the world where the rest of us are, right? Like, it seems like so much of that is the project, especially in America, right? As long as I'm in a place where, for example, I have good health care through my job or through my this. I don't really care about universal health care, right? Like, because I got the Cadillac plan. So I've designed an experience outside of everyone else's, despite the fact that it would be better for everybody if we all had universal health care, right? One, one kind of example, right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's an anomaly in history, actually. This kind of detachment between the, the creators and those who are in relationship with what they've created. If, you know, it's an artifact of the last, you know, 150, 200 years of, of radical change that's happened to our world. But if you look back at the way art, the way music happens, the way even architecture happened before industrialization, you see it was always in relationship, in community. And so we're doing this, you know, this ongoing, highly efficient experiment and doing things in this separate way, in this de-individualized way. Uh, and there's a lot to say about the effects that's had historically, but just to come back to this moment, the term designer it implies, per the matrix, per the scene in the matrix, somebody who creates something that is great, perfect, perchance, and casts it out into the world, and that thing affects everything, everyone else. But that creator is sort of just sitting, you know, the throne of the genius, and is unaffected. It is not a dialectical situation. It is not a dialogue. It's not relational. And that's, that is not just weird, but it, it, it's harmful for everyone involved. It's very hard for, for designers to give up the notion that their thing is the magic talisman that does it, the ring, from if you want to go, if you want to go to Lord of the Rings, perhaps, right? And I want to suggest that when we turn that around and we say, okay, what if designer, maker, artist is in relationship with the person who is on the other end of their work throughout? And we see 
that this is kind of the key to actually being able to do any of this work in a real way that aligns with the phase zero, that aligns with your experiential goal. Teaching is a perfect example of that. Yes, yes. I could put my class up online as a, as a Domesca auto tutorial course, and that's great if you want to learn how to use Photoshop. Uh, you don't really need to be in relationship. But if I want to bring a set of ideas into the world that affect change in people's lives, there's so much more that has to happen between people than just an engagement with a set of material, much less a kind of digesting of that material and repeating of that material. Rather, the material is just the conduit. It's just the catalyst for what could actually happen. In a classroom, yeah, there's the lecture, but the conversation that happens is what makes it really possible. There is no class without the students. And that's not just because you need somebody to pay for the pay the bills, but because there's something that comes alive between material and the person who is engaging with it in a new and thoughtful way. A really good class, because I love this, I, I'm working largely with grownups and, and professionals and grad students, uh, not so much undergrads, uh, but a, a really wonderful class for me is when the people I'm presenting the ideas to improve upon the ideas, push them into a new zone of being. This is thinking. This is community process. This is great power. I don't know about you, but when I watch a film, I stay and watch those credits at the end. I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the fact that all these people could come together and create a dream for me. Right? There's a certain power to human collaboration that makes it possible to change things. And this is the big shift between thing-based design and experience design. Thing-based design says the thing goes out, it is perfect, it has an effect. Uh, experience design says we create a context for possibility between us. And those things are part of that context. I wrote this book, but that's not the end of the experience design. Now the book is a piece of conversation. Yeah, like we're having right now. This is the design, not the book. And it's funny you mentioned movies, not just because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of movies, but I, I also do look at the credits and I look at all these people, the best boy grip and the gaffer and all, the, you know, all these terms that you learn watching credits roll. And it makes me laugh sometimes to myself, particularly if I watch something that was like terrible, mm -hmm. which, you know, I've watched a lot of terrible movies. <laughs> I'm with you. A lot of terrible movies. I always marvel at how all of these people were involved with this. I'm like, did none of y'all know this was terrible? Or did you or did you just not care, right? In, in the same way that I'm a, I'm a big music fan and I'll listen to a record or an album or maybe a one particular song. And I'm like, you had to have known this was going to be amazing when you were doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way you were in the studio and like mixing this album. Because I, when I drive a lot, I, I listen to Joshua Tree, YouTube, I'm a big YouTube fan as an example. And there are many other examples I could give, but I'm like... Joshua Tree, you had to have known that this was fucking amazing, right? Like you had to have felt that in the same way when you did like some terrible Netflix movie, you had to have known that this was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I respect that people got to get a paycheck, yeah. <laughs> like, right? Like what, I, you know, I worked on, you know, 
Fast and Furious 64 and, but like, you know, or, you know, Starship Troopers 3 or whatever it was, you know, and that I, I didn't for the record, but I needed a paycheck and I totally respect that we have goals, but, and we have needs. Um, but I think also, you know, I think about those times and, and I think, you know, our life spans are limited. We have very little opportunity to affect the world. And so if we could step back and say, what is my purpose? What is my purpose in this project? What is my purpose in my work? What is my purpose in my life? If we can actually step back and say, what is the phase zero going all the way down for a moment, then we can at least start to recognize some moments of choice. And there are, there are millions of them. They may not, maybe you do have to do Fast and Furious 26 or Starship Troopers 3, but also you can say, well, you know, I have some moments of choice in my community. I have some moments of design in my home. I have some moments of design at the school where my kids go to school, something like this. And I now understand some of my aims because I've thought it through. My hope is to offer people tools for that. And also, I think the, the feeling of remorse around those missed opportunities around there goes a period so much time in my life is a powerful one. Perhaps it calls us to ask the question, what do I really want to do? Absolutely. And, you know, I want to talk about, you know, obviously we've been talking about experiences, but it's it's a term that also, and, and, you, and you referenced this in the book, it's popular, right? Like every organization out there is talking about they're building an experience, right? Like it's not just shopping, it's an experience, right? To the point where it it can feel co-opted, right? And you're talking about a, a completely different level of engagement. So I want to make that 100% clear. But as an expert, one of the things that I've talked to organizations about in my work is this notion of approximation. And what I mean by that is they'll they'll say they want to create a thing or they want to create an experience. And I'll push back and say, I don't think what you want to do is really create what you said. I think you want to create an approximation of something. All of us are familiar with going to a concert, for example, you know. And so when you are a streaming company and, and you want to tell me, oh, you're going to give me the experience of this show at home, what you're really giving me is an approximation of that, right? You're not giving me the actual experience that you're citing, right? This is just one example, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that notion of approximation and how, as we sort of get a copy of a copy of a copy of an experience, what that could mean to how we view all of this is happening around us. Yeah, I mean, first, you know, I want to say everything sort of every idea also renders into its sort of lowest, lowest point. I published a book of poetry. I did an MFA in poetry. And at one point I said, well, where do I see the word poetry in the world? And I was like, OK, for a week, I'm just going to look around for the word poetry. And I saw it at the supermarket about some flowers. I saw it in a bunch of ads for jeans. I never saw it on actual poetry, right? Because, <laughs> you know, everything is an approximation of actual poetry. And, and so in, in a certain sense, I'm like, OK, that's how it's going to be uh, with everything. You know, like, what is the 
the sort of Valentine's Day treacle versus like actual true love in a relationship and uh, all that. So we're going to have that. And part of the reason I wanted to write this book now was to kind of save space for something a little bit more complex within this practice. And what I've seen in the field is a kind of attempt to find a better set of tools to make things more saleable on the one hand, and 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 a question around what these tools could do for changing things. On the other hand, these people fall into these kind of two groups. And, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not particularly grumpy at the individuals involved in either thing. Look, you got to do Starship Troopers 3 to pay, you know, to pay the rent. But I think we need to, we need to also hold the possibility that there is something better. And I think when we look at, just to go back to your primary question there, when we look at this kind of approximation of experience, like home theater, home box office, right? Even back then, home box office. It was like, we're going to make it just like the good thing, but but not as hard to get to, but cheaper. <laughs> you know, I was so fascinated by how in Japan you could rent a father figure or a, a parent, some an actor would come and play that role. Yeah. You know, this kind of yeah. this kind of approximation. And of course, during pandemic and the height of pandemic, all these live experiences were being approximated on Zoom. Absolutely. Zoom cocktails, Zoom dinner parties, Zoom reunions, Zoom weddings. It's like enough with the Zoom. Right. But what we really should be doing is asking the question, what is really, what is the experience here? What is actually the nature of it? What is possible here? Like, okay, you know what? Going to a a Zoom concert is not the same as going to a concert in person. And we then have to ask the question of both experiences. What are we talking about? Oh, going to a concert in person is not really about the music. Because if it were about the music, we'd be able to understand the lyrics. You know, when I'm at home listening on Spotify to that song, I am not only do I understand the lyrics, but they're like they're they're right at the bottom. I can I can read them, right? Like that's a different experiential goal. When I'm at the concert, also like it's eleven o'clock before they come on. I'm a little tipsy, my knees hurt. I'm talking to all these attractive people. You know, there's just so many people. It's hot. Like there's a physical discomfort, which is part of the experience. And if I'm going, there's something I'm looking. In fact, I would argue it's a large part of the experience, right? There's friction there, right? Like There's friction. I don't want the frictionless experience. I want to get jostled by the person that's going to, you know, get another beer, right? I, I want, you know, there's always that part of the show no matter who you're seeing, where everyone's standing. And then there's that part in the set list where they're kind of playing something. Maybe if they're promoting an album, it's the new song. So you don't know it as well as you said, you know, or mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. it is, right? Like there's all these right. cadences that you just know that a- approximation can't do. Right. So now that we have these two things in front of us, we we can ask the question, what are the experiential affordances here? What is actually possible? And then we could say, how can we work with what is here rather than trying to make this thing into a bad version of that thing? I did an experiment during pandemic called The Book of Separation. And I was, you know, I was I sat down with some collaborators and we were thinking about, well, what is what is the internet? 
What is uh, Zoom? What is uh, the phone? What are these modes of connectivity offer that are actually wonderful, right? Because it's mostly a lament. It's great to see you, but you know, I wish I could see your knees or whatever. I wish we could be together, but you know, we die of the plague, you know, so we can't do that. So this is like the next best thing. But you know, there's all these other things, right? There's all these other possibilities. You're in your home. How can we utilize that? You've got all the media of the internet available at your fingertips. When that idea first popped into the minds of science fiction writers, it seemed unbelievable. Uh, And yet, you know, we don't have a sense of wonder about it. How could we work with the wonder of that? Uh, we've got connection in various different sensory modes. How could we work with that? We created a, I, just, I wrote this piece that was uh, designed for two people to create, you know how we make mixtapes? Remember mixtapes? Oh, of course. Like we don't do that because Spotify yeah, doesn't have thingness, right? I'm a, I'm a mixtape guy, man. I grew up back in them days. Your TDK, your Maxwell. Like, you know, know, when the tapes became (laughs) see-through. Those were great because you could see it diminishing, right? You could see it diminishing. (laughs) And like, those are great moments. And it wasn't just the listening to the mixtape. It's also the thingness you could hold in your hand. You can't hold a Spotify playlist in your hand. So it doesn't have the same. And the sequencing. Everybody misses the power of sequencing, whether through a mixtape, an actual tape or CD or record, right? That it goes in a sequence. Like when you gave someone a mixtape, like if you know you like someone and you gave them like, oh, I made this, right? (laughs) There was a lot of care in that, right? Especially when you had to record off of a record or a CD and you got to stop it right in time. There's an art to that shit. (laughs) Yes, because then the thing is a material record of somebody's thinking about you, even if they made it five times. It's only five times, right? And, And maybe they handwrite it, maybe they draw something, you know? Right. I still have some of those. I don't have a CD player in my car anymore. I still have those CDs like it's not as good as the mixtape, but somebody had to write the label. Right. And oh, yeah. And now it's scratched, which is a measure of the time that has passed since I got it. Right. The material thing is is really it's a relational thing. Materiality measures relationships. But, you know, so when we're dematerialized, what happens? How do we engage the power of the Internet? And so we created this experience and it worked like this. You get a phone call and we're doing this together, but you're in Italy. I know you're not yet, but you're in Italy. I'm here. We decide we're going to do this at the same time. You get a phone call. I get a phone call. Pick up the phone and you hear a voice, you know, introducing you to the experience. And then you get interviewed about me and I get interviewed about you. It's all it's it's a robo call. So you say things and you press buttons to answer questions and it records what you're saying and it records your choices. You make choices about where I, Abe, would love to go in the world and where you feel, you know, and I talk about where you fill up, you know, what a good memory with, you know, that we have together, what we might do. And it then collates all those things and uses them to design an experience that's about 40 minutes long of a journey that we're each taking. Only I'm going through a kind of playlist based on what you've said about me and you're going through a playlist based about based on what I've said about you. And sometimes we send each other postcards from our journey. There's kind of a fixed track, but a variable track that that has 
that is a result of the conversation. Sometimes I'm, I, I fell in love with these walking videos on YouTube in the middle of pandemic. You just walk straight through a city. The best ones, don't, they don't even move the camera. They just walk straight. And you feel like you're there in this kind of wonderful way. And I worked with a composer to create the music for it. And then, you know, you come to the steps of some beautiful thing. And then I hear you, your voice from 20 minutes ago, talking about a memory that we have together that we had together at the steps of whatever in Paris, because that's where you thought I would I would like to be. And uh, and then we go on the, and we send each other postcards from our journey and we make certain drawings along the way. We send those, uh, we make a map. It's essentially a map of our relationship and we send it to each other. And then eventually the phone rings and we're talking to each other. And this is an experience that can't be had in person because it was about separation and it's an experience that can't be had without the internet because it needed the depth of, of media and possibility of the internet it needed the phone it was about this quality of separation and the quality of longing i think about how letter writing from friends or lovers or whatever is an experience that hasn't been really repeated right there's no version of that there's the waiting for the letter there's the handwriting of the letter there's you know the letter is this powerful almost lost experience and so the stamp the seeing that like air mail thing at the at the back <laughs> you know yes 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 <laughs> there's all the material life of it and the fact that i know you wrote it 5 days a week a month ago or whatever it was and you were thinking of me at that point so all these all these forms have experiential affordances. We just need to ask the question what they are. And when we try to squeeze one experience, a concert, into the wrong form, it sucks, right? Like, it's like, well, yeah, I get it. You know, that's why it's sort of, you know, whenever I see people at concerts, forgive me if this is you, but whenever I see people at concerts recording on their phone the show, I'm always asking, are you gonna watch it? Like, what's that gonna be? You know, you're, I know you're probably just putting it up on, on your Instagram feed, but like, why bother? Why bother? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. Like, I'm, I definitely don't want to watch a concert or really anything through the lens of a phone. I do grab moments when I'm with at a concert because I, I remember last summer, me and two of my closest friends, we went to go see Rage Against the Machine. And this was a, a band, you know, obviously we love the band because we went to go see them, but you know, at a t there was a long time when Rage was not a, a actual working band, right? So in my mind, I was like, I'm never going to see this band ever, much less with two of my boys. And then they announced a tour, which got delayed two years due to pandemic. So finally, last summer, we got a chance to see this band and we, we did capture ourselves. Like at one of the points, just kind of chanting along, Zach's going crazy, the crowd's mosh pit nuts. And we and then we laugh at it because we're like, oh men yelling, right? Like his chest, you know, we're past our prime, but we finally got to see Rage together. But that that moment is is really just for us. Like we didn't post it anywhere, but we can go back and laugh at it together. Um, but I love the the notion of how in in what you describe separation becomes the, you know, we think so much about our experiences together, and yet separation became the catalyst for a different type of event. It's a it's a beautiful way in which you kind of describe that. I, I want to keep us on time. 
and we can do this forever, right? Like we'll end up talking oh, about definitely. all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so I, I want to get us to the the final two segments of the show. The first one is off the dome, which are just uh, rapid fire questions. I only have two of them, and I kind of kept them in the spirit of experiences, right? So the first one is something that I think we'd all have have experienced before. One coming through customs, something that I did just most I did very recently, and the DMV, right? Oh, which yeah. which of these would you classify as your worst experience? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god, they're so bad. They're so bad. They're so bad. <laughs> They're so bad. Um, but I would say the DMV, because coming through customs, bad as it is, is bad in a kind of wonderful way, because <laughs> I am on my way somewhere, right? And getting through customs is this wonderful feeling, that feeling of like, you know, you know I don't know, if you're in one of those countries where you got to press the button and if it's green you don't they don't have to look through your bag and yeah. if it's red they do right <laughs> that feeling of pressing the button getting the green light and being released into whatever wonderful new place or or home that you're from that is fantastic and, I, and in a way in a way i might almost say sometimes it's nice to have a bad experience in front of a good experience. <laughs> Whereas going to the DMV, I just end up back in my car out in the parking lot. Like yeah. nothing is actually better, right? <laughs> like it's a bad experience that has, that really has no positive payoff on the other side, you know, just just less likely of a negative payoff. So uh, I would I would put it there, but boy, when the DMV I used to go to instituted a, a screen with a number of minutes until your turn came up, sign. Yeah. That was just so much better, which is so telling. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it doesn't take much to elevate a really shit experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have to answer the question, but I'm, I'm torn. I guess the DMV, I don't go to that often, to be honest. Like, I mean, right. the last time I had to get my license renewed was a few years ago, and I'm good for like another 10 years. So I'm kind of solid. Right, right. I don't know. Customs, especially coming back to America, is just the worst. I mean, you've just done it. you yeah, just done I it. just did it, and it just kind of sucks. So I'm biased. Um, uh-huh. On the flip, best experience, but I'm not giving you any prompt. Like, if you can think of something that you say, like, you know what? This is one of my favorite or one of my best experiences. What would What would that be? Oh man, I feel like I'm going to become a cheese ball here. Uh, and cheese balling and say, is okay. Yeah, you know, actually, it wasn't actually the wedding itself, but two days before my wife and I got married, we had uh, something called we called it Dave Fest. It was uh, a gathering of, you know, our friends are you know artists mm-hmm. and composers and writers, and we're like, wow, we don't really want all this stuff on the registry like we'd like a few things but i think we could you know we can figure out how to get some pots and pans but what we do want is the work of our friends and so we put our re- on our, our registry was commissions of artworks by our friends okay and you know some of them were you know you know empty pocket uh, artists who were probably having a little trouble making the flight out here anyway and so uh, if you were coming to our wedding and you're going to spend 100, 200 bucks on a gift, you'd spend 100, 200 bucks on, on commissioning an artwork from somebody. And so 
two days before our wedding, we had essentially an arts festival of all these commissioned works for the event. And it was just the most moving thing ever. I was kind of in tears the whole time. Oh, that's awesome. Just to see what people had done and to have been able to just change a little bit of the dynamic of the way the gift works there, you know? So that's a little bit less of like, get us stuff and a little bit more of feed this community situation. You know what I mean? That's awesome. That felt really wonderful as well. I love that. Very, very eloquently put. That sounds like a like a great experience, right? And it's connected to another great experience. Yeah, it was <laughs> that, lovely. That just happened a, a few days later. So I think that's, that's awesome. I, I want to get now finally to the drop. And the drop is our chance to share anything at all with with our listeners. And so I'll go first very quickly. My drop is a book by Stuart Brand and it's called um, How Buildings Learn, What Happens After They're Built. You know, I love these these kind of books that ask questions. It's an older book, but it's it's just, I think, something that's really interesting and, and fun to pour through and look around. There's no particular place where you need to start. You just kind of jump in and just explore. I love the way he thinks generally. He's a very provocative person if you if you dig into who Stuart Brand is and what he's all about. But just, just something that I came across and I found a used copy and I purchased it and I've been enjoying it ever since I got it. So that's, that's I would recommend it. And so that's my drop. So... You're up, my friend. That's amazing. Just before my drop, in response to yours, do you ever see that that blog, unhappyhipsters.com? It was all looking at Dwell Magazine photos and the pictures of the people in them. The people are really just sort of meant, they're kind of mannequins for perfect spaces. Okay. <laughs> and it like, you know, you'll have a kid playing in a perfectly white room with like one toy and no mess, right? And, uh, you know, the joke is like, you know, we are presented architecture in a way that is totally lifeless. Yeah. And it's hilarious because we know it's not true because we know buildings have lives afterwards. I looked at, I was thinking about the drop and I went back to my library and I thought, what's on my mind? And I, I went back to Priya Parker and the art of gathering, which is just brilliant. I mean, she just lays out, you know, and kind of, you know, in some, in some cases, not such a, not such a, soft, everything is wonderful kind of way, the the tools that we need in order to gather effectively. Mm -hmm. What makes a great gathering? She's so smart and to the point. And she talks about, like, for instance, challenging concepts like excluding generously. How do you actually create a gathering that excludes people? That sounds terrible, but that means you include people who have a sense of connection to each other and, and then it becomes effective. It's like, it's it's been a manual for me. I'm putting together, we're going to have a book release event in New York and, you know, we're debating inviting Priya Parker. And I was like, I, I feel really, I feel a little self-conscious inviting Priya Parker to... <laughs> A gathering. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. wondering, like, how many <laughs> how many invites doesn't she get because people are too nervous yeah, <laughs> inviting yeah. her to gatherings. 
Absolutely. We put it in a universe, right? Like maybe, maybe this is all part of, of the journey to make it happen. It's, I'm definitely going to check that out. It, it sounds, it sounds wonderful. That's awesome. Out there. A- Abraham, this is, this has been a, a great conversation. I'm, I'm glad we were able to, to get this done from, from bumper stickers to gathering. We've, we've covered it all. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the deep dive. Philip, thanks for a wonderful, a wonderful hour of chatting. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.